Good morning. morning. It is good to be here. Uh, If you are visiting with us, we're especially grateful that you're here. If you've been here the last few times, you're like, I thought this guy wasn't the normal preacher. I really am not. Um, That's a blessing for everybody. Uh, But Tommy, he's in Texas uh, this week. He had a funeral for his sister, um, and then today he's got a funeral for his Uncle Bob that we've been praying for uh, who has passed away. And so please keep the Souths in your prayers uh, as they're dealing with a lot of loss uh, in that, and they should be returning uh, early this week, I think Monday uh, or Tuesday. But please keep them uh, in your prayers uh, as well as all the other prayers uh, in there. All right. Um, So as you can tell by my creative title in your bulletin, okay, we did not finish what we started last week, and it's a good thing for you because otherwise you may have still been here uh, if I had done that, right? So to the unknown God, part two. So for those of you that weren't here, we're just going to give a quick update as to where Paul is at. Paul enters Athens, and Athens is a city that is full of idols, for it is easier to find an idol than it is a man. And when Paul sees this, what he finds is that his heart is provoked by what he witnesses in that city. To be provoked is to be filled with godly sorrow. And Paul, as he is watching and becomes provoked, he's able to do that because he is waiting with clear eyes and a full heart. And last week I challenged you to become a people who are provoked. For when we become provoked... We are a people who are filled with godly sorrow by that which is happening in this world. And so we wait with clear eyes, with full hearts, and we look for ways to share the message of Jesus Christ. And Paul does this, and he goes to three different places. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the Agora, and he goes to the Areopagus. What Paul was doing was he was in the business of building a bridge. He was in the business of stepping into their world, stepping into their hurt, and figuring out what it looks like for Jesus to meet their deepest need. In order for us as God's people to build a bridge, we must be willing to step into the hurt of people's lives. We must be willing to step step in and then anchor in to their deepest need. And show them how the message of Jesus Christ fits just that. John Baker, founder of Celebrate uh, Celebrate Recovery, all right, this is a ministry that was developed for people who uh, have addictions. And he calls them hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And this is a very, very successful ministry that this man from California started because he knew that he suffered from addiction himself. And so he comes up with this ministry that now serves people who are addicted in all uh, sorts of different ways. What did he do? He's anchoring in to this community's deepest need and then showing how Jesus fits the profile to relieve them and to release them from their addictions and to create them a new people. He anchors into their deepest need, and he begins to build a bridge. Paul says, you have an inscription to an unknown God, and this unknown God is who I will proclaim to you. Concluded last week that as we are waiting in this world, may we have clear eyes, full hearts, for it is only when we are provoked enough to build a bridge that requires us to go to 
and to anchor in, to figure out what it looks like to bring the message of Jesus, to bring a cross to those who are lost. And once we have stepped in, once we have anchored in, really our job is to figure out, now what in the world is it that I'm going to say? You see, I've met, I see the need. I have now figured out a way to meet that need, but now I have to communicate something. And that's where we find Paul in the text today, is he needs to figure out what is it that I'm going to communicate to them. I know what I want to do. I want to point them to the unknown God. Now, how in the world am I going to do that? Because they have no idea who this God is that I am about to talk about. That I'm about to talk about. If you listen to Billy as he read scripture this morning, there's a few things that you're going to notice about Paul's sermon right off the bat. One, Paul does not quote scripture once. He didn't say Isaiah. He didn't say, well, Abraham. He didn't say Moses. He said none of that. So one, Paul does not quote scripture. The second thing that you will notice is that when something is quoted, it was not scripture that was quoted, but it was one of the um, the uh, poetic guys of their time, right? It was one of their own writers that they listened to, that they knew that Paul quoted, all right? Why in the world did Paul do that, right? He doesn't quote God, he quotes their own poets. You see, what Paul is doing, once he has figured out a way to step into their world, Paul is what theologians would call contextualizing, Okay? And that's a fancy word for, let me say of what is up, utmost importance in a way that you can hear it. Right? It's defined as taking the gospel to a new context and finding an appropriate way to communicate it so that it is understandable to the people in that context. How do I say this, which is important, in a way that you are going to understand? When we figure out where our message needs to and can be heard, then the next thing we can do is figure out how are we going to communicate it. And our message, okay, is always going to have two components to it. It's going to have the medium and it's going to have the method. The message is important, and I will argue that the medium and the method in which the message is communicated is equally as important because if the greatest message ever, which I believe is this morning, just kidding, the greatest message ever, if it is fall, if it is felled on deaf ears, then what's it worth? Our message will have two components to it, the medium and the method. The medium. That's the specific reason why a message is using a certain method to get its story across. It's the physical representation, all right, that is used to convey the message. So nowadays, what would be a medium? It's going to be your TV. Maybe it's going to be a newspaper. Maybe it's going to be an app on your phone, right? That is the medium. How do you get your message across? How does it come across to you? It's the physical representation. And choosing how we physically want to represent the gospel of Christ is just as important as the message that we are trying to say. Okay? And just like the method, you have to make sure it's appropriate for your message. So how do I want to get it across? How do I want to show it? And Paul thinks this through. Okay? He looks at them and he figures out, okay, how is it that I want to share this with them? You see, what Paul does is he teaches them something new 
in the way that they would have heard teachings for a long time. In other words, he does it in the forum that they are accustomed to. What does scripture say that they always wanted to do? They always wanted to listen and to hear new teachings. And here Paul is doing it in the exact same format that they would have understood and they would have listened to new teachings. He does what is familiar to them. If you look at the back of your bulletin, okay, to fill out the blanks, just kidding, right? There's none of them. What is that? That is a medium. That is a way to get the message across that Tommy uses that you guys have grown accustomed to, and I just can't do that. It's the way you get your message across. The back of the bulletin is a medium. It's how you process and how you understand. What's the second thing that Paul does? Not only is he stating facts and talking to them in the way that they would have understood, but he's also using their own poets and language of understanding. For in him we live and move and have our being. He quotes another one. For indeed we are his offspring. Why does Paul use their own poets? He wants to establish and to build that connection with them, right? Even though he doesn't use it in the same context that they would, they would have understood it as Paul spoke of them. The second thing, the method, right? And this is going to be the strategy in which we choose to convey our message. I already said Paul doesn't quote scripture, but if you read through it, what do you notice? There are tons of scriptural ideas behind it, right? Reference to judging the world. You can find that in Psalm 9. You can find it in Psalm 96. God fixing the borders. That comes out of Deuteronomy. God stretched the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 42.5. Genesis 1.1. He's using scriptural ideas, but he does not use scripture itself. In other words, I'm not going to use scripture that you are not going to understand. I'm not going to quote and keep quoting so that you come to my side so that you understand what it is that I'm saying because the truth is you don't find the authority of Scripture to be authoritative over your life. So I'm not going to start there. He does something different. I'm not going to mention Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses because you have no um, idea of the significance of our rich history that comes through God the Father. For us, what does that look like? I'm not going to use all this Christian lingo for you to get caught up on, right? Like, what's the Christian lingo we often use? And I'm not saying these aren't important, because they are. But words like holy, sanctify, redeem, consecrate. When we're talking to the outside world and we begin to use language like that, we lose them immediately because it's not something that we talk about in our everyday lives. And Paul realizes this. He realizes that, and so he picks his medium, he picks his method in a way that is going to speak to them. He's talking to Stoics and Epicureans, and what does he do? He affirms what the Stoics and Epicureans would agree with, and then challenges them where they need to be challenged. And as we go through the sermon, which you'll, uh, we'll go through that and show where they would agree and where they need to be challenged. Our message must be presented in a way that our target audience is going to understand. 
our message must be presented in a way that our target audience is going to understand, for you can have the most profound thing to say, but if it's not done in a way that your audience is going to understand, then it is all for naught. By and large, I think that church as a whole, even Glen Allen Church Christ included, church as a whole, we need to evaluate what is done in the here and now and how it comes across to our tar target audience. Whether it's our neighbors, whether it's our young people, what is the medium and the method that we choose to use in order to give people the hope of the cross? On a personal level, what is the medium and the method that you choose to use with your neighbors, with your coworkers, to get the message of the cross to them? Because it matters. It matters that we know truth, but it matters how we explain and share truth as well. Um, I saw an email this morning. Uh, and it comes from the Barna Group. They do a lot of uh, church research, young people, all sorts of kind of research, okay? Um, and what they did was they pulled a ton of teenagers, and they asked them to fill in the blank, all right? And this was the question. I would prefer to attend a church that supports blank. And they asked the teenagers to fill it out, okay? Here are the top four responses, I would prefer to attend a church that supports ending extreme poverty. I would prefer to attend a church that supports positive mental health. I would prefer to attend a church that supports ending hunger and worldwide famines. I would, support, I would prefer to attend a church that supports ending sexual abuse. I would also say that God supports all four of those things in a way all across the board as you read in Scripture. What are they saying? We want to attend a church that these are the things that um, that church takes part in, right? So what is our medium and our message, our medium and our method going to be if we want to be a church that, um, that supports ending hunger? Maybe the medium, the physical representation, is doing physical labor and managing drives to end hunger, to engage the young people in that. We have people that want to serve. And so we do things and we engage them in that way. And then our method is going to be one that talks about Jesus as the bread of life as we do that, right? As you find your target audience, you create a method and a medium that works for that as a way to preach and to share the gospel with him. I'm not saying that that's what we need to do. I'm give, just giving you an example of what it looks like to contextualize the message of Jesus Christ as you reach out to people in your individual lives and as we do so as a whole. If we want to engage young people, there's four ways that we can do it right there and figure out what it looks like as a church moving forward. There was a paper that was put on my desk, and it was uh, and I, the member who put it on there. I truly do appreciate it, uh, but it was titled "Students Speak Against Evangelical Preachers on Campus uh, at VCU." Right, and as I was reading through the paper, right, you can kind of see the students don't like the 
evangelical preachers being there, and then the preachers have their own mind of what is going on. Uh, and I'm going to read two different quotes, but what you're going to see is that um, the preachers are trying to get a message across, but the students are not necessarily receiving it, even though the message itself is true. Right? So there's a quote from the students that say, the preachers that come on campus, they usually preach anything along the lines of misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, racism, or anti-abortion rhetoric. Many students have tried to have conversations, but it is futile because their minds cannot be persuaded. That is what that is the message that's coming across to the students, whether that is the true message or not. That is what's coming across. And then they talk to the preachers and they say, hey, what's going on in this situation? And the preachers say, well, we do not come to VCU and preach with the intention of bringing up those, um, those topics, for we all have sinned and I have repented of mine. But the students always want to bring up homosexuality and the like, our purpose is just to preach the general gospel, but those issues separate people from God. We have to address it as to not stay away from the truth. What's going on, right? There is mixed messaging here. One group is thinking they're doing something. The other group's thinking they're doing a completely different thing. If we want to get the message across, then we need to change the way in which we do it, for that right there is not working. How do we engage them in a way where they can hear what it is that we are saying, because you could read the article and you go, I can understand where the students are coming from, and you can read it and go, I understand exactly where the evangelists are coming from. Find a different way that works and does not make the divide bigger, but brings it closer. And I can hear some of you already, and I know we haven't even gotten into it. I can hear some of you already thinking, I don't know where this is headed, but I already don't like it, right? Because if we, you guys laugh, those are the ones that are like, yes, amen, we don't. Okay? If you change the medium and you change the method, then obviously your message will be compromised. That's not true. But there is a caution there, right? We cannot change the message to make it more palatable for our audience. The method, the medium, change it. And change it and change it and change it and change it until it works. The message always stays the same. Syncretism, that's the attempt to combine different or opposite doctrine and practice, right? And this takes place when we're trying to communicate with non-Christians, um, and in order to make the gospel palatable, we take out essential doctrine that God himself says, hey, this is necessary to be part of my family. And we say, well, that's not really palatable, so let's take it out right? That's not what Paul does here. And I'm not suggesting that in any way we change our message. I'm suggesting that maybe we reevaluate what it looks like and what our efforts look like. For what is at the core of the message can never be compromised. But I think sometimes we think that because it's delivered using a different method with a medium that we're not comfortable with, then it is inherently wrong. And actually, in Paul's sermon, you'll find commentators that look at that and say, Paul did not do justice. He did not do well in this sermon for the Athens. Why? Because he didn't quote scripture. And two, because he never even mentioned Jesus Christ. Right? And when Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 says, I have resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, 
They're saying that's a reflection of this failed sermon. And he goes, I don't want to know anything about culture anymore. I just want to preach Christ and the gospel. But I don't think, I think that that is further from the truth. That that is not correct at all. Because I think Paul not only looks at his audience, but then he develops a message that is true to the message of Christ that is going to engage them in a different way. So as we go through the message, quickly. And I know some of you guys are like, I thought we were going to go through this. I purposefully, as I read through, sometimes I think we overcomplicate things, and we can overcomplicate the message. And we don't think so much about how the message is going to come across or what we want to do. So I really wanted us to think about that for most of the time and then focus uh, on the message. But one, as we go through Paul's sermon, you cannot preach Jesus without the doctrine of God. And I think there's times that we choose to separate the two. We say Jesus saves us from God. Jesus is peace and loving and God is full of vengeance and wrath. However, Jesus cannot be understood without first understanding God. And that's exactly where Paul starts in verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything." You see, what Paul does is he affirms the Stoics' belief that God is the source of all and he cannot be contained. He affirms the Epicurean belief that God needs nothing from humans. Yet he challenges them, right, that God and the universe are not the same. He challenges them in that God is the creator who is involved in human affairs. He challenges them in thinking that there's not a God of water and a God of fire and a God of mountains and a God of this and a God of that, but there is one God who is overall, who is everything. Why? Because God is the creator of everything. And by the way, you do not create a place for God to live a temple. Rather, he has created a place for you to live. And so he affirms what they would affirm, but then he challenges them in ways that they have not thought of yet. God creates a place for us to live, not the other way around. And I think sometimes we create a box for God to live in. And we say, this is what it looks like to follow God. This is what it looks like for God to do this and do that. And we put him in the box and God can do so much more. I think scripture makes that clear, yet we limit him and we put him in this box. The second thing is that God is not dependent on you. You see, all the idols that they would have had in Athens, all the temples, they would have had servants. And the servants, what would they do? They would serve the golden image. So what would they do? They would feed the golden image. They would wash the golden image, they would serve that image. And what's Paul saying? If you have to make his meal, he's not much of a God. If you have to wash him when he gets dirty, he's not much of a God, is he? We serve the God who created everything, who doesn't depend on us, but instead we are dependent on him. Why? Because God chooses to give 
to give everything life and breath. It's not about what I give. It's about what God gave first, and we are now dependent on him. Verses 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted points and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from one of us. He affirms the Stoics' belief that there's a connection between all humanity, yet he challenges them in that God cares enough about his creation in order... uh, He cares enough about his creation to order its affairs as he challenges them. God cares enough to set things in place and to intervene and to be a part of it. Why does he do that? He does it in such a way that they may find him. God desires to be found. God is creator of everything. God's not dependent on us, but we are dependent on him. God desires to be found. He desires for us to look. He desires for us to find the place that he is hiding. He has put things in place in order that creation may see his goodness if our eyes are open to it. And I have an illustration, but I'm going to skip through it just for you guys. Because God desires to be found. By the way... Paul would continue, he says, he is not far from us, for it's in him we live, we move, we have our being. That's from a Greek poet, Uh, I'm not even going to try to say his name, but that uh, verse comes from uh, Minos, which is Zeus's son, that comes, that's about Zeus himself, and Paul takes that out of that context, places it into his own, and says, now you understand that God is so close that he is our everything. Everything we do connects to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 to 23, Paul says this. He says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why do I do it? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Is this Paul's way of saying, uh, of justifying all of his compromises? No, it's Paul saying, I am going to become whatever it is that I need to become in order to save them. I'm not compromising the message. I'm compromising the way in which I present and in which I develop that message so that they may see Christ through me. Church, we need people. We need ministers such as myself to be able to do just that, to be able to say, I have become all things to all men so that I might win them over regardless of, not regardless, but I am willing to sacrifice the way that I see things, the way that I do things, in order that I may bring you over for you to see who Jesus is. Paul does not lack, have a lack in his identity. He's secure in his identity. How do I know that? Because of how he fleshes it out in all circumstances and in different situations. Verse 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
For the times of ignorance cannot be overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the core of Paul's message. He has spent time reeling them in. He has spent time deconstructing how they think, and now it's time for him to reconstruct. So he's torn it down, and now he needs to build it back up. Preacher Matt Chandler puts it this way. Hope evaporates in a place that knows everything that is wrong and nothing as to how to make it right. Hope evaporates when we know, when they know everything that is wrong and nothing how to make it right. This is the core of Paul's message. And he begins to reconstruct. God commands repentance. There's a time of there's a time of ignorance that was overlooked, but guess what? It's now no longer overlooked. God commands us to repent, for he has chosen a day of judgment. And when he judges, he is going to judge in righteousness by way of Jesus Christ, who is righteous himself. He is going to do so in a way that puts all things correct and puts everything in order. How am I assured of all of this? Because Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. Paul gives them a way out. To reconstruct, he says, repent of your sins, put your faith in that person of Jesus Christ. Paul tore them down, and then he builds them back up. He doesn't leave them hanging. Paul spoke of God's greatness, and then he spoke of how God had made him near. So what do I do with all of this? What if, what do I do with everything that you have said because you've spoken rather quickly, you've lost me, bring me back in. What do I do with all of it? One, you prepare to walk through your own Athens with eyes open to see what it is that you can do. Prepare to walk through your own Athens. Number two, close your mouth, open your ears, and open your eyes. Be observant. Be there. Not because you have to say something, but because you want to observe. And then number three, be creative. You know the message. I mean, everything that Paul said, God is creator, God is sustainer, God um, is judge, and he sent Jesus Christ. God, that, you know all that. You've known it since you were a kid, most of you. You do not need to redo the message, for you already know it. You need to be creative in your approach with your own Athens as you look at the people around you. You know the message. Believe that God can use a vessel like you in order for that message to come across. And anytime you're pointing out something wrong, you make sure you point out how Jesus is the end-all, be-all to that which is wrong. Be creative. And I know for some of you, I've probably given you more questions than answers. But the truth is, is you and the audience are more creative than I am up here. And you know your people better than I know your people. Let God use you. Let God challenge you. 
and let him use the message that you so desperately want others to hear through you while looking and figuring out what's my medium and what's my method. How do I want to get this across? Because God will do just that. Let's go ahead and stand and sing number 100.